Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollock. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out what to do in this um, wonderful world we have going on. I am with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hi, Lila. Hey, Kelly. How are you? I, um, I- I'm doing. <laughs> You're doing. Yeah. No, we're all just doing. We're all doing and it's hot everywhere. So we're all hot. So that's that's how it's going. I'm pretty excited about the conversation that we're about to have as somebody who has found myself in charge of directing the voting operations of many of the people in my community and in my family in the past. We're talking to Kevin Elliott, who's the author of Democracy for Busy People and also a lecturer in ethics, politics, and economics at Yale University about his book and also just about his field of study. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. So I'm going to ask what may sound like a basic question, but I suspect it's the kind of question some listeners may have and be afraid to ask. So what is political science? And I, I know it's actually a lot of things. So what what sort of approach do you take? What 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 is political science for you? Yeah. So, um, you know, political science, uh, when if you talk to a political scientist, like a professor of political science or something, um, they'll, they'll talk about in terror the experience that we all have of like sitting on an airplane and somebody asking, so what do you do? In part because, um, you know, if you were to say, well, I'm a professor of chemistry, right? Like people are like, all right, that's great. You know, um, I don't have any thoughts about that. Uh, But if you say you're a professor of political science, people say, oh, you know, politics, this is something that I maybe think I know something about and right and and I can have opinions about this, uh, you know, to to exchange with you or to uh, shower upon you as the case may be. So political science is uh, a discipline that attempts to use more or less um, rigorous methods to try to study political phenomena. I kind of put a very, you know, very kind of uh, uh, put it very generally speaking. And and so what that often means is political scientists, to be a little bit more flip about it, uh, political scientists try to use the tools uh, uh, of like surveys and um, experiments and uh, very careful uh, ethnographic uh, qualitative study where you do interviews and and then you know sort of count things up and do complicated types of of interpretation. So it looks a lot like many other kinds of science. Um, a lot of political science draws a lot methodologically from economics. So it can look very technical. Like if you look inside a political science journal, you'll have like you. Know, Plots and dots and lots of uh, uh, complicated things. So uh, uh, political science tries to be very rigorous uh, in in uh, using numbers to try to study political phenomena. Political science, like many academic disciplines, uh, breaks down into different kind of subfields, right? So people interested in different kinds of topics. Traditionally, you'll have people who, uh, in the United States, you'll have people who study American politics and comparative politics, people who study international relations. Uh, and then people who study political theory. Uh, some places will say political methodology as well. I tend to focus on political theory, which focuses on basically ideas, uh, ideas that people have about politics and the way that those ideas have developed over time. So a lot of what we do is we read kind of 
dusty old books um, and and sometimes uh, not at all dusty pamphlets, right? Uh, uh, the things that that people who have been involved neck deep in changing uh, the politics of their place and time, people who've been involved in revolutions, people who have uh, you know led governments at, at different times, and then trying to sort of render their ideas sensible to us today and and often trying to kind of discover or rediscover ideas that have been useful to people in the past and might be relevant to us uh, in our own day. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this area of study? And especially, you know, in your book, you talk a lot about your mother's political journey and her kind of varying degrees of political involvement over the course of her career and her life. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about like the the sort of world that you come from and how political science and specifically this interest in how to make democratic systems more accessible came to you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. So um, my 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 mother. So I'm kind of a I'm an academic. So I have like a PhD and whatever. I'm like you know I'm at this I'm, you know got this job at Yale, but uh, I don't have a lot of things in my background that kind of recommend that. Neither of my parents went to college, um, so I'm like a first generation college student. And on top of that, like neither of my parents, in part because they didn't go to college themselves, they didn't really know what college was for. Like they didn't like so when I arrived, you know they couldn't. I, I I didn't come to college being like, here's what college is for. Like my parents were like, you're going to go to college. And that's it, right? Like, you know, they didn't, they didn't sort of have anything uh, beyond that. When I got to college, I had the experience that many people do um, in college taking more or less kind of like liberal arts, the kind of liberal arts experience that the experience, maybe many of your, your, your listeners have had of coming to understand that like we live in a big world. And there are processes producing that world. There is like, you know, stuff going on behind the scenes. And for me, it was taking a class called the the History of Social Thought, which made me realize that like, oh, people have like thought about and constructed theories of like the world that I see around me, uh, right? So they're providing a a framework for understanding the world um, as I see it, but in a way that highlights things that I didn't otherwise sort of recognize, right? Um, so, so for me, this was an awakening experience, right? And I was like, oh my gosh, like look, look at this world, right? Uh, that we're occupying, and here are these ideas that make it make sense to us. So, why does what does this have to do with my mother? Well, when I went to college. I basically called my mom. My mom was a single working mother, right? So she didn't, she raised me by herself. And so she didn't have a lot of time for um, politics. Uh, She didn't have a lot of time for much of anything other than taking care of me, going to work, keeping the household kind of put together. Um, And in this, you know, she's not at all atypical, right? There are millions of Americans, millions of people around the world uh, living in democracies who find themselves in this position that just they just don't have a lot of time for politics in their lives, right? Given given the the um, other obligations that they have, the choices that they make about the things that they care about, the things that they prioritize. And so for my mother, she, you know, she didn't have time in her life for politics until I went to college. I went to college and started learning about politics and learning about the world in this more uh, expansive, expansive way. And I began calling her on the phone, right? My my weekly phone calls to her ended up being these like, oh my gosh, mother, have you heard about free trade? <laughs> have you heard about Thomas Hobbes? And of course she's like, no, right? But she's a very curious person, right? It's so like the reason my mother didn't go to college, the reason she didn't pay attention to politics is not because she's lazy and not because she's dumb or something. She's 
busy. She's just busy, and hence the sort of busy people of democracy for busy people. So anyway, so so through basically through conversations with me, she came to get a little bit of that understanding that like there's more going on in the world. And so, um, you know, our stories kind of diverge at that point, right? At that point, I'm going to college and I eventually take a bunch of classes in, in, in social thought. And then that leads me over to political theory because political theory is a bit more normative. Uh, it's more interested in the question of your of your podcast, the, the name of your podcast. What can I do, right? What should we do? It's not simply... We don't simply want to understand the world, as this famous quote goes. We don't simply want to understand the world. We want to know how to change it. And this was something that political theory was uh, very interested. It gave more resources for kind of investigating that question. My mother became more politically interested. It became somebody who who um, was involved in her local uh, politics and who simply voted. She didn't vote for a long time. And uh, yeah, so so that, that I suppose that's kind of how our our. our development together. And, and for me, I, being a younger person, I was able to kind of pursue this in higher education, did well as an undergrad, and uh, uh, eventually kind of fell backwards into academia because everyone I, everyone told me, don't do academia. It's a terrible life choice. And I tried not to. And I was like working part-time at a law firm. And I was like, I hate, like, I'm, I don't, it's not that I hate this. It's that I was trying to do academia in my spare time. It's like trying to read like academic books in my free time. Like, and it was just, it's like, okay, I might as well try to do this for my job. Cause like I'm trying to do it in my free time. So um, that brought me back to grad school and eventually to, to, to where I'm at now. So I think probably everybody listening to this podcast understands that people with more money shouldn't have more influence in politics, but I think it's probably a surprising thing for at least some people to think about that people who have more time or interest shouldn't necessarily have more of a say in what is going on. So I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for us and why it's important that democracy not be too hard. <laughs> or I, I think you you talk some about like the, the floor and the ceiling of, of what our democracy should ask of us. So can you talk a little bit about what what you mean by that and and why these are important if we want something that's truly representative? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So as you put that very well, so we're very used to thinking about equality uh, in our politics, especially in the last few decades. We, we think about equality in terms of kind of money. And we look at, um, in the United States, at least, we have a very unregulated campaign finance environment and one that um, has been getting less and less regulated <laughs> as time passes, I guess. And so, but that's not the only way, uh, right? That that some people can have a greater say uh, than, than others um, in our politics. And it's quite widely recognized when we are concerned about um, money in politics, what we're concerned about is democratic equality, right? What we're concerned about is that everyone's voice should matter at least somewhat equally, right? You know, some people are going to have a bit more of a say for for a variety of reasons or whatever, but like in general, we do want there to be some some baseline level of equality. One of the ways that we see this in our current sort of democratic government is the fact that like I have a vote and you have a vote and all of our votes matter the exact same amount, right? That's a sort of the paradigmatic example of, of what equality can mean. But we also know that there's lots of things between giving money to candidates and voting, lots of other ways that people can get involved. And of course, your, you know, your podcast, you guys interview lots of people who are who are doing all sorts of 
hugely interesting and important forms of activism between there. But right, the, one of the things that's very important to, to, to understand about these various forms of, of activism is that these are forms of power, right? People who have more time to go to evening meetings. I've just moved to uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and, and I got a got a mailing from my local city city council person, basically, uh, saying basically giving a list of a bunch of meetings um, when the city committees meet for different topics uh, that the city government is dealing with. And they're all like, you know, at six o'clock in the evening on like a weekday, you know, and it's like, I I have young kids personally. And so like, I, that's when I'm putting dinner together. That's when I'm putting them to bed. That's bath time, right? Like, that's a very difficult thing for me to do. Other people in my community, right? Maybe older people, people who don't have children, um, or people who have uh, the luxury of live-in help or something like that, right? They can go uh, to these meetings. They can have their voices heard. Uh, and this is the case for all of these other forms of participation that can uh, help people to make their voice heard and make a difference, make a change, right? We use that kind of empowering language, right? It's like, I can make a difference. I can make a change. I can make my voice heard. And all of that is well and good. But we have to bear in mind that when your voice is heard in a co- the context of something like a public meeting, there's lots of people that aren't there, right? Lots of people aren't there. And what do they think, right? What are, what, what would, what would they say if they were there? We don't know. Like we literally don't know because they're not there to make their voice heard. And that seems to me to be a problem, uh, a problem for lots of obvious reasons, right? I've just mentioned people with young children, but also, right, people who have to work two jobs, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, people who um, uh, have to take care of uh, uh, disabled family members or, or, or sick uh, friends or family. There's lots of ways that people are made unavailable um, that track lots of forms of social disadvantage that we're concerned about for other reasons, poverty. I also think about um, various examples of of racial and and sexual uh, oppression that put people in a frame of mind that they're not available for politics, right? If if you're a woman who's facing like sexual harassment in the workplace, like that just messes you up emotionally, right? Like you're going to go home and you're not going to go to like a public meeting, like you're going to sit and process, right? You're going to be made busy by that. And there's, this is the case for many other forms of, of disadvantage that, that people face in the world. Anyway, so uh, I'm going on a bit, but the basic idea there is that if we care about democratic equality, we have to recognize that people who have more time on their hands, people who have more uh, uh, intense interest in politics, it doesn't mean that they matter more. It doesn't mean that their interests deserve a greater say or that their perspective deserves a greater say, because everybody has a life to live. Everybody has interests that can be harmed or protected uh, in politics. And it is the obligation of our government to protect everyone's and advance everyone's interests equally. And then the puzzle is, how do we do that? (laughs) This made me think so much about my own move out to California, where in coming from New York State, where there are very few propositions on the ballot, the amount of time and research that's required to vote in California is significantly higher. Kelly is laughing because she knows I go on about this constantly. And part of it is because I do a proposition guide for all of my friends. It takes me hours of research to do. And the reason I do it is because I know that it's just not something that people have the time or energy while they're working and taking care of their kids and you know trying to deal with their grocery shopping, have the time and energy to deal with. So I'm wondering... 
if you could talk a little bit about some of the like baked in systems that you feel like maybe ask too much of citizens that we have in the states and also what some of the policies are that we can pursue to make kind of participating in democracy, to make doing democracy a little easier on people. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, a great question. And in 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 this time of of our uh, this age of democracy, I suppose, in the U.S. or, or democracy in decline, perhaps. Yeah. So um, the we have seen uh, in the last few years, um, several state governments uh, in the U.S., um, exclusively controlled by the Republican Party, for the most part, have tried to make it harder for people to vote. So just let's just focus on voting for the moment. So to give you some examples of this, um, Florida passed a law in 2021, um, which required that anyone who wanted to vote absentee, that is to say, to, to get a ballot in the mail and, and not have to show up on, on, on uh, election day, if they wanted to continue to receive a ballot that way to vote absentee, they would have to re-register every election. Previously, they would be able to, to vote for, I think, three elections uh, in a row without having to re-register. Registration is vote suppression. <laughs> like that was its or the origins of vote suppression in this country. It, it was introduced in an effort to reduce voting by certain disfavored groups. And the way that it works is this very uh, uh, facially neutral way of saying, well, look, you know, we're trying to make voting more what well, we need to have your information before you show up to the polls. And so we need you to register to vote. Now, the thing about registration is it, it at minimum doubles the hassle of voting because you now have to make two decisions. You have to arrange two different bureaucratic hurdles. You have to negotiate two bureaucratic hurdles in order to exercise your, your right to vote. So uh, uh, this Florida law, right, increases the number of times that people have to register and re-register to vote. So you are effectively burdening the exercise of the fundamental sort of right of, to vote. Um, you're making it harder for people to participate by increasing the costs of voting. There are lots of other uh, examples of this that we've seen in the last few years. Um, the, the introduction of uh, voter ID uh, requirements in, in many U.S. states where it's very difficult to get the ID that like th they will only count certain kinds of identification um, for for voting purposes. Um, you know, some states will say uh, a student ID is not allowed, even if it's issued by a state university, but a hunting license is accepted. Right. Like these are these are choices that are made uh, with an intentional uh, purpose to disempower some people and, and empower other people in, in our politics. So, uh, yes. So so. But very generally speaking, right, when we burden the right to vote, we make it harder for people to participate when they are busy, right? Oh, I missed that registration deadline. I guess my my voice won't be heard this election. So 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 there's that kind of that kind of general thing. Another form, and this might be going just a little bit beyond what uh, uh, is feasible in the U.S. I don't want to say feasible, but a lot of Democratic reformers are interested in ways of um, reforming democracy by getting people together to talk about the issues and then uh, um, to, in one way or another, issue a report or sometimes to advise politicians about making some important decisions. So uh, in the state of California, uh, Lila, you're in, you're in California, um, they have the citizens, uh, they have a, a citizen panel that draws the districts, right? Uh, several other uh, states have introduced these independent um, uh, districts. Redistricting. Independent redistricting, redistricting. That's, the word. that's exactly right. Thank you. 
and and uh, uh, you some of these can be done in this way where you have citizens deliberate together, right, and then they issue forth a a a, a, uh, a decision. Many democratic theorists and reformers are very interested in trying to get more of that type of thing, where we can ideally like like a jury invite people randomly right from the population to come and deliberate about some public matter and then in one way or another we can have their their decision their output their voice come to matter in 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 making decisions in one way or another um that is very difficult <laughs> that is a very demanding heavy burden to to put on someone right if they want to do that over the weekend, okay, who's going to watch my kids over the weekend, right? What if I need to work over the weekend? I'm working an hourly job, hourly wage job or something. I have to say no to this opportunity. And then there's people like my mother who didn't have any political interest of her own. So if she had received an, uh, an invitation of this kind, might have just said, wow, this is not, not a thing that I'm very interested in. Like, I'm, I'm, this is not a thing for me. So, so I'm not going to do it. So one of the things that I think we need to be very we, we need to think about when we are trying to improve democracy is we need to think about ways to reach people who are in the position of people like my mother, people who are often through no fault of their own, pushed outside the sort of realm of people who see politics today as concerning them. Um, and so uh, some of these, I think, just, just to mention too, I think political parties at their best they're not always at their best. Lord knows they're not always at their best. Political parties at their best really do this job uh, very well. They're like, in some ways, they're like the skeleton key for a huge number of problems in, in, in our politics. And I know people are sort of very down on political parties in, in a variety of ways, again, for understandable reasons. But one of the things that parties do is that they help make politics understandable. They say, hey, there's like an election coming up. Here's what we think this this election's about, right? Now you might not like uh, what it's about, uh, but ultimately, this is one of the reasons that it's good to have more than two parties, um, for instance, because this can give us a larger political agenda, right? One of the interesting things about New York State is that New York State has a a, a rule called fusion, um, which allows multiple parties to endorse the same candidate, and so New York State has. A working families party. It also has like a constitution party, a kind of a, a relatively far right party. And what these parties allow voters to do is to vote for the main party candidate, but on this other party line. And so if you're somebody who's running for office, right, you vote for the working families party, the person running for office goes, oh my gosh, I got a bunch of votes from this working families party. Like their agenda should be something that I give a thought to. So, so, so parties can reach people by uh, uh, and can make politics understandable and accessible to people by making the stakes of elections salient, by explaining to people, here's what's going on in this election, here's why it matters. They also will do this over time They by providing basically like a shortcut, right? Okay, generally speaking, this party's for the little guy, this party's for a big business, right? If that's all you know about the parties, that's not wrong, right? It's it makes it much simpler for people who are like, I don't have a lot of time right now to like look at what's going on. But generally, this party has been about this stuff. They've been about this stuff for sixty years. I'm going to vote for them, right? Another way that we can make voting much easier is uh, through very straightforward reforms, like 
either automatic registration for voting in the United States or what amounts to, in some ways, the same thing. And in some ways, even the abolition of registration is same day voter registration, right? So show up to the polls and are you registered to vote? No, I'm not. Great. Fill out this form and then cast your ballot, right? That collapses those two moments of, of needing to go out to, uh, to go out to vote, Just collapse those, make that one moment, uh, right? Makes it much easier. Uh, in my book, I talk about mandatory voting, which most people say is a non-starter in the US, um, but it definitely is one of these uh, institutions that reaches out to people where they are to convey to them that like, this is your democracy too. We want to hear your voice. This is your government as well. Like. And our system needs your input, right? To me, that's what mandatory voting conveys. Like that's what it means for a, a democratic government to have to, to require people to vote is to is to convey to everyone that your input matters. We need your input. So I want to ask you a little bit about this concept of standby citizenship or a standby citizen. So uh, <laughs> I have to admit, you you helped me release some guilt I was holding on to. So uh, in since about November 2016, I've been like, what was I doing the decade before? Why wasn't I more politically engaged? And you know, I was I was still voting. I was engaged, but this idea that you're you're aware enough of what's going on that you know when things are going off the rails in a way you don't like and how to engage when you want to engage but maybe you don't have to be fully invested at all moments uh it actually felt kind of good probably not a place i'm ever going to get back to but felt like a, a good way that a person could exist so can you talk a little bit about what what that would mean yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, you mentioned before that that so I, I mentioned this idea of of sort of democratic citizenship having a having a ceiling and having a floor, right? And so this is uh, the the idea of standby citizenship is an attempt to kind of define a an attractive minimum that like even people who are very busy should tr should at least try to meet the standard. And this standard is fairly undemanding, right? It's fairly fairly achievable by most people. So, so the idea here is. It has a couple of pieces, right? So the, the main piece is, uh, as you were saying, Kelly, for someone to be a standby citizen, what you want to do is, at minimum, pay attention. Periodically, check in, right? Don't get so far away from what's going on in politics that you're like, wait, wait, what's uh, what are the parties again? Who are uh, who are the parties? Remind me of this, right? You want you need to make sure that you're paying enough attention, and and there is this kind of there is a fair there's a uh, an initial process of kind of socialization where you're learning who the parties are and you're learning the kind of the basic lay of the land of the, of the sort of political landscape. And once you do that, and that, that can be a difficult process, right? That can be a little bit that this is the kind of thing that my mother uh, experienced in this period in, in the middle of her life when, when I began uh, sort of talking with her about these things. But once you've become socialized, you know, staying up on things is is really not that difficult, right? Our information environment is saturated with political news. Um, if you there are ways to filter it out, um, right? But it, it is there for you at a very low cost, right, to, to, to access. So so you, you want to be at least paying attention periodically to politics, but that's not going to be enough um, because if you find yourself in the position, uh, it sounds like Kelly, like you did, of looking around and going, boy, things are not great, uh, right? Well, if you have only been spectating and you've never so much as voted, then all of a sudden it becomes very difficult for you to know what to do next. To be a standby citizen, you want to have maintained enough 
um, connection to politics in an in in an active mode. So here we might say maybe you should be voting at least once a year, at least every other year, in order to keep your what some political scientists have called your civic skills, uh, your your uh, n- sort of embodied knowledge of how to go about participating in politics, even just on the basic level of like, where do I go to vote? Like, where is my polling place, right? Stuff like that. What are the registration requirements like in my like locality, right? So you want to maintain those skills so that if you detect a politics in disrepair, right, that you are able to step in. So the standby citizen will stand by, but when they recognize things are screwy, they can step into politics. And that requires these two elements. You want to have the sort of civic skills that enable you to participate. And you need the attention to be able to, to, to um, detect when you are needed, <laughs> when you are needed, when, when people with your views are, 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 are needed in our politics. It's like the bat signal. <laughs> right, exactly. So you need to have your eyes on the sky, at least sometimes, right, to detect the bat signal, right, to, to, to get yourself into the bat cave and, and get yourself going. You talk a little bit in your book about, well, a couple things. One, you talk about how there are plenty of, you know, of, of actions people have taken with good intentions to sort of theoretically expand democracy that are actually kind of counter- productive because they make it harder to participate. You also talk about how there's survey evidence that people are significantly less likely to some to support changes that require more than one meeting, which I am in that pool of people for sure. But it got me thinking a lot about this, the concept of like time tax, which was a term I did not know until a few years ago. And I think maybe it was in the Atlantic, there was an article about it. And I thought about specifically in terms of accessing healthcare. That's, you know, I'm a healthcare advocate and there's a huge there are huge time taxes that get imposed on American voters that are unique to our system that are uh, problematic and extend into our ability to participate in you know, other democratic processes. So I'm wondering if you could name some of the kinds of democratic innovations that you know, that are well-intentioned that aren't actually expanding democracy. Because I think we often think about like things like, you know, voter ID laws or, you know, registration requirements and uh, things that that are, you know, that are meant to cut off people's access to the franchise. But what are some of the things people are doing that are well-meaning that are also doing that? So I can give you these, these, there are these, these wonderful examples. So in Canada, in the last decade, in the 2000s, so from 2007 and 2010, basically 2011, two Canadian provinces were, were interested in revising their electoral system. So they're like, look, we don't like the way our elections are working. Like, We want to change the rules. But uh, basically, when you have elected officials, when, when, when the people who are elected are changing the rules of elections. It's um, things get screwy, uh, right? For obvious reasons, right? You're like picking the rules that are that are going to govern whether you stay in office. So what they did instead was they said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to invite citizens to get together. I sort of uh, described this kind of process. We're going to invite people to come, and we're going to select them. We're going to try to select them kind of randomly, which this was uh, this was an issue. And 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 then we're going to get about 150 of them together or so. And then we're going to get a bunch of election experts together and they will teach them about different types of electoral systems. And then uh, over the course of many months, they're going to travel around the province and they're going to talk to people uh, throughout the province. And then they're going to get together and they're going to write a report. Um, and the way it worked in um, uh, British Columbia 
their recommendation was put on the ballot for a vote by the whole uh, by the whole province. And if it passed, it would have changed how they did elections. Okay. So this sounds great, right? So many people, you hear that process and you're like, boy, that sounds like a wonderful democratic process because what it had, what you had were like non-politicians, just kind of ordinary people, right? Uh, getting together to consider this like deep, difficult issue, right? This like institutional question uh, in our politics and they're being given the power effectively to reform, not to reform it directly, right? But they're put in a very important role in putting the proposal together, right? And then that went before the voters. So in a way, like politicians were cut out of this story, right? Altogether, once they, politicians initiated the process, but then it was all citizens like all the way through. Now, the issue with this, <laughs> the issue with this had a lot to do with how there were a few of them. So who showed up? Who ended up being on this on these? Uh, they're called mini publics, basically. Well, one of the things that we see is well-educated people, hugely, hugely overrepresented. Basically, in in these different Canadian provinces, you had uh, a population that was slightly more people. I think in Ontario. Had did not have a college degree versus had a college degree. College educated people were like a fourth of the population, but were like fifty something percent of the people on the committee, right? Or on, on the on this on this panel. And this is a pattern that we've seen again and again and again on these on these things. So who who are who's empowered by this? Is it like Joe down the street, right? No, it's like Professor So and So, right? Or it's right. A lot of people. So another divide here is blue collar versus white collar work, right? Uh, people who have uh, professional jobs versus people who have to often like work hourly. Think of that. And we saw a great deal of overrepresentation of people in professional jobs. Another point uh, about <laughs> that you mentioned, uh, Lila, when, when you describe these types of democratic reforms, as kind of democratic innovations, we get a bunch of ordinary people together and they talk about the issues and then they issue a, a decision which might, you know, change things, right? People, that, that gets people going. It's like, that sounds great. All right. And then once you say this process takes six months, because that's how long these, these, these bodies met, uh, six months to a year, if I'm not saying a lot, all of a sudden people are like, Oh, uh, you know, that's, that's a lot of time. That's, a, you know, that's a lot of weekends, right? And that's where you were saying, so when you, when you tell people like, okay, how about like two weekends? They'd be like, that's too much. You'd be like, how about one meeting? People get, okay. She's like, what's that? Nobody wants good. more meetings. It's enough Nobody. meetings. We all have enough meetings. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So, so those are very well-meaning, right? That's a, that's a way the idea there is to get power out of the hands of politicians who are captured by the rich, right, or who are out of touch, uh, and put power back in the back in the hands in the hands of ordinary people. But it ends up with like, well, the ordinary people are like, not quite ordinary, they are a particular group of people. And you, you in some ways, the, the reformers sometimes tell on themselves a little bit, because they're like, ordinary people do this, ordinary people will love to do this. And you think, well, really, like, Maybe in your social circle, right? But if you get outside your social circle a little bit and you talk to people like my mother was once upon a time and you'd be like, hey, would you spend six months doing this, right? And probably the answer is no. So you end up empowering people who are very often already very well empowered, right? Professionals, people who are well-educated. These people have a lot of power in our society. They have a lot of resources in our society. So 
one of the things that I worry about is these well-intentioned reforms will end up giving more power to people who are already very well heard, very well represented in our politics. That's not the case for voting, right? As I said before, we all have one vote and my vote matters the same as anybody else's, right? And so when more power is concentrated in voting, in voting processes, and if you can equalize participation in voting, that's a very important thing that we don't have as much of in the United States as we could. Um, Well, that's a way to kind of try to force the powers that be to listen to ordinary people. So I really enjoyed reading your book. It really opened my eyes to some things I, I hadn't really been thinking about. I think it's really useful stuff for people who are activists to be thinking about. Can you tell listeners how they can get a copy of your book? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's I guess it's available more or less wherever books are sold. Uh, so it's it's uh, published by the University of Chicago Press. So if you, if you search for my name, Kevin Elliott, uh, Democracy for Busy People, it'll pop up. It's available at, at uh, you know, the big... Uh, big giant conglomerate that's you know devouring the world but you can also order it from a variety of booksellers uh yeah and uh or you can order it directly from the the press which is i'm sure the press would like me to tell you to do that <laughs> yeah I, I it's available at other, i think barnes and noble has it as well and is there anything that you wanted to mention or want to you know tell our listeners that we did not ask about or cover no just that uh you know i i i think that it is important to understand that you know activists and people who are deeply concerned with politics are extremely important in a democracy does not work without them it is also important to bear in mind that your voices are not the only ones and our voices are not the only ones that matter right um and that it's there is a constant kind of push and pull uh, in our politics between people who are very well placed to have their voices heard and the people who are not so well placed. Um, And when we try to put more power into those places where we can get our voices heard as people who are kind of people that we are, we have to always bear in mind who is not here with us, who is not in the room. The sort of in being the the in the room privilege is is very, very easy to miss. And um, I think that when we think more carefully about that, when we think about the people who are too busy to be with us here today, um, right then, it's it's important for us to understand that the scope of our authority should be humbled by that. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been delightful. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at What Can I Do Pod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at what can I do podcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. 